Morning, church. <laughs> Come on. Good morning, church. Good morning. Right. Hey, we're in this together, right? If you don't know me, I'm Kevin Shingleton. Uh, I'm uh, one of the elders here at Gray Road. And um, as we get started here this morning, I want you to imagine a, a scenario with me. I want you to imagine that you are living in a country where to be a Christian is very dangerous. If you live in this country, Christianity is going to be oppressed, it's going to be persecuted, you will be in danger, your family may be in danger, it's going to be very difficult for you to make a living, don't even think about starting your own business. I don't know how easy or hard that is for you to imagine uh, this morning. It's probably a good reminder that millions and millions and millions of our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world live under that reality this morning. And we need to remember them, we need to be praying for them, we need to be mindful of them. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could set up a live stream to one of those countries, maybe to a pastor or a Christian leader that is addressing his congregation this morning? Maybe he's talking to young pastors who have their own congregations. Wouldn't it be fascinating to hear what a pastor in that scenario would say to his congregation in a, in a country like that? Now imagine we, we set up a live stream and you, you find out that not only is he addressing his congregation, uh, the, the subject of the text for this morning was that he's going to talk to his congregation about government. I would be fascinated to hear what a pastor or Christian leader in one of these countries, who himself is probably in much danger, would say to his congregation or to other leaders about how they should see and respond to government in that situation. Well, I don't have a live stream set up this morning. Jim, maybe we can do that next time. But I do have a few letters that I would like to read to you. Some excerpts of some letters that were written by Christian leaders to their congregations, to churches in persecuted countries, like so many this morning. Here's a few excerpts of what these Christian leaders say to these congregations about government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Honor the emperor. Now that last one, if you haven't figured out, it probably gave it away. If you've heard these words before, uh, these words were written to the early church 
by the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And these churches were under increasing persecution. Does that surprise you a little bit to see those words coming from guys like Peter and Paul? I mean, those are fiery guys, right? Wouldn't you expect to see some, a little bit more militant language there? A call to rise up, a call to civil disobedience. That, that would have been natural to think that that's what they would say. But here's, here's two men who remember are in great danger and will one day soon give their lives as martyrs killed by this same government that they are talking about here. And they speak several times to their congregations. They wanted to make sure that their congregations and these churches under the Roman government were very clear on how they should see government and how they should respond to government. This is the second in a series of messages that uh, we're going to be going through this year, quarterly series, on thinking biblically about certain things in our world, in our country, in our culture. We started back in January with talking about having a biblical worldview, thinking biblically about your worldview, how you see the world, how you make sense of the world, your philosophy of living in this world. We talked about how important that will be in the weeks to come. And we'll certainly see the importance of that this morning. If you remember, we talked about uh, a biblical worldview in, in the terms of events and people. And if you view the events that are taking place in the world from the reality of a sovereign creator, that's going to put you in the right mindset to respond to those events in the right way. If you look at the people in this world from the reality, from the perspective of a redeemed sinner, that everything I have in Jesus has been given to me, that's going to allow me to see the people in this world with the right perspective, with a biblical perspective. We'll see why that's important with our topic, with our subject today, thinking biblically about government. I'm trying to read the room here a little bit this morning. The masks make it really hard. I can't tell if there's kind of a sense of anticipation as to what in the world is he going to say about government, or if there's just a sense of dread. It's like, hey, listen, I get that. It's like, man, talk about the government and politics is so pervasive. Can't we just turn it off on Sunday morning? I get it. But listen, it's precisely because talk about the government and politics is so pervasive in our culture, in the everyday conversations in our nation, that it is so important for us to think rightly about it. Because anything that is pervasive in the culture, those conversations find their way into church. And we need to be thinking biblically, rightly, about government. I understand that government has always been, at least in my lifetime, and if you know American history, all the way back to the founding of our country, uh, criticizing government is kind of a national pastime, right? 
I mean, our country was founded on discontent with government. And it's always been a hot topic in my lifetime, but, but is it just me, or does it seem like it's ramped up a little bit more in the last few years? you feel that? It's, it's always been polarizing. It's always been emotional. It's always been passionate. It's always been divisive. But man, even more so the last few years, right? And, and coming to a head in 2020, the confluence of factors in 2020 brought it to an all-time high, in my lifetime anyway, right? Because I can say with absolute confidence that the government was more intrusive into my everyday life in 2020 than any other time in my lifetime, and I'm guessing you could all say the same, right? I mean, how quickly we forget. 15 months ago, remember when you heard about the first stay-at-home order? My, my thought was, can I even do that? <laughs> is, that is that even legal? And, and then it just kept coming, right? You can't go here, you can't go here, this is open, this is closed, this is essential, this is not. You have to do this and social distance and you have to wear a mask and you have to, man, Americans don't take kindly to being told what to do. And, and, I, and some of you even had opinions on this. This is the part where I do not look at my wife. <laughs> she told me she was not going to sit up front. I told her she needed to sit up front. But uh, <laughs> so intrusive, right? And so the, the, the noise around government and these decisions that are being made, right, it, it pervades every area of our life, right? You, your life was impacted, your family was impacted, your job was impacted, your business was impacted, our church was impacted. And, and I so appreciate that in the earliest days of this, Pastor Toby was already cautioning us, right, that man, this has the potential to not only distract, but to divide the church. If we are not thinking as a congregation biblically about government, and so that's that's our subject this morning. Let me let me illustrate why I think this is especially important in 2021. There's two different ways to think about government. More of an abstracted view of government, as you kind of the government, and everybody likes to complain about the government, Big Brother or Uncle Sam or whatever. But increasingly, government has become much more personality, person-based, right? Let me show you a, a picture. This is government, more and more, right? If I could monitor your pulse or your blood pressure or your emotional state right now, I suspect that you had a reaction to this, depending on which picture you were looking at, right? Oh, you better strap in. <laughs> What'd you feel? Anger? Disgust? Maybe, maybe pride, I don't know. Rage? Injustice? This is, this is the reality of government in 2021. And listen, We've all seen it, right? 
things that have professing Christians have said about people in this picture and supporters of people in this picture on both sides we need to think biblically about government or it will at minimum distract us and probably divide us one more picture it's not just the heads of state, it's anybody, we'll see, in, it's anybody that's elected or appointed that pulls in Congress, that pulls in the courts, armed forces, law enforcement, all very polarizing things in our culture and in our churches. We need to think biblically about these things. And uh, the scripture has a lot to say about this. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will be really clear in your word this morning. We will see very clearly what you have to, to say to us and how we can uh, learn what you expect from us when it comes to government. I pray that you'll be honored and glorified in everything we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your uh, Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to anchor this morning. Sorry about that. It's um, page 1014 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. If, if you're not, it's near the end of the Bible. It's, it's right before Second Peter. Um, we're going to anchor in First Peter 2 this morning, although we're going we're gonna to touch on uh, really the four key passages in the New Testament about government in the epistles. And, uh, and I want to... Uh, by the way, if you're wondering how, uh, of all the elders, I was chosen to handle this particular subject, uh, the, the selection process went something like this. I missed an elders meeting. <laughs> and uh, my brothers, after the elders meeting, told me that uh, they, they decided I would be best suited to handle this particular subject. And they said it as a compliment, and yet the smiles on their faces uh, made me question the sincerity of that sentiment. But listen, I, I, I quickly accept that I believe, I believe firmly in the providence of God. I have seen it more times than I can count, that God puts the right man in the right text, at the right time, with the right people, and he uses it for his glory. And so I stand here with that confidence this morning, even though I recognize this is, this is a potentially you know, divisive subject. But fortunately, the scripture is very clear. And here's what we're going to uh, study this morning. There's three things here. As I, as I initially started to look at this passage in 1 Peter 2, it was very clear that there were three things that it was talking about. First, it was talking about the view of government that the Christian should have. Second, it was talking about the duty to government that, that the Christian has. And third, it was talking about the motive that the Christian has when it comes to government. And, and I want to take you on a journey this morning, the same journey that I took with this text, because I had one reaction to this text when I started with the view and the duty. But when I, when I got to the motive... And the motive is really covered in the context of these passages. 
Once I really embraced the motive, it completely changed my perspective on the other two. And so I want to start with the motive this morning. I feel like if we don't start with the motive, we're going to jump right to the kind of what about, what about, what about, right? What about this scenario? What about this scenario? And I think once you get the motive clear, I think the rest of it becomes very simple and easy to understand. And so we're going to start with the motive this morning, and here's how we're going to do that. I'm going to read um, these four texts, and I'm going to read the context surrounding those four texts. And, and see if this doesn't kind of put you in a, in a different mindset when it comes to thinking about government. We'll start here in 1 Peter 2. In, in 1 Peter 2, when we get to verse 13, Peter's going to make this statement, be subject to every human institution. But look how he sets this up in beginning in verse 9 with this congregation that is under persecution I suspect saying be subject to human, every human institution, he's talking about government, might have been a bit jarring for this, constant, or for this congregation to hear, and so he sets it up this way. This is very interesting. In verse 9 he says, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see what he's doing there? He is resetting this whole conversation about human government, something that is temporal, something that is earthly, something that will not last, and he's framing it in the picture of his eternal sovereignty as our sovereign creator. He immediately repaints this just to remind them who they are in Jesus and a a higher calling, the higher calling that they have. He goes on in verse 10 to say, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they see, or so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So be subject to every human institution. Does that feel different? Paul does something very similar in Romans 13. I'll have it up here. In Romans 13, 1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, but he's, look at how he sets this up in chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Does this sound like the church in the last 15 months? Just, just a good diagnostic here. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good, and so let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, let then, Paul's talking to Timothy who's dealing with the church at Ephesus. First of all, then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, even for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and godly life, or peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Finally, Paul writes to Titus and says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Again, is this, is this the church in 2021? To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And when I got done looking at the motive, I stopped trying to find loopholes in the text. Because the text becomes very clear when we understand the motive. There's two aspects to the motive that are really clear. The first is that our motive when it comes to government is the glory of God. We saw that clearly in verse 12, right? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He goes on in verse 13 that we are to do this, be subject for the Lord's sake. And he even goes on in verse 15 to say this is the will of God. This is what Paul is saying to this, the, the early church here who's under persecution, and that persecution is increasing. He's writing to people who are, who are beginning the Nero years, if you know anything about that. He says, it is the will of God, it is by the providence of God that you are where you are at this time, in this place, under this government. It is the will of God that you are here. And so you can be subject to them under the, the sovereignty of your creator. And for the Lord's sake, it is his will that you are where you are. I think sometimes we forget that, you know, God's, God started the early church. He birthed his church. And... and he didn't create some utopia in Jerusalem for that church to start in. He didn't create a representative democratic republic with a constitution based on Judeo-Christian ethics to start his church. He birthed the church that would last forever under the Roman government we probably wouldn't have done it that way, right? 
It is under his providence that we are, that they are where they were, that we are where we are. And so we do this for the Lord's sake and for his glory. Secondly, we do it for the sake of the gospel. You see how much gospel language there is surrounding this government language? He starts out and reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of where their citizenship truly lies, Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then he says, remember why you were saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And first, when he speaks to 1 Timothy, he says, you should leave a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Even those government officials, even the people that you're rubbing shoulders with every day that you don't agree with. We do everything we do for God's glory under his sovereignty as our creator for the sake of the gospel. And all this language around the peaceably, the dignified, godly lives. Do not discredit the gospel. By ranting about the government or, or disobeying the government is what he was dealing with. Two good diagnostic questions the next time you interact on social media, right? <laughs> is this going to bring glory to God? And is this going to open the door to a gospel conversation or is it going to slam it shut because of what I'm saying or how I'm saying it? Am I discrediting the gospel? It should shade everything that we do. So all that to, to get to the main point. What we're going to see clearly here is that Christians respect and submit the government authorities for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. And, and if you're still kind of thinking about the whatabouts, there are what I would call extreme cases, right? And this is being written by Peter and by Paul, who obviously are going to defy the government to continue to preach the gospel, and they're going to give their lives for that. So there's, it's pretty clear if the government tells us to do something that's in direct violation of our call to our creator, right, that's, that's pretty clear, our response to that. This is not what Paul and Peter are talking about in these passages. This, this is talking about kind of the default daily walk of life. And how do you view and respond to government in the daily walk of life? I doubt that any of you are going to face a gospel or martyr situation this week, right? Some of our brothers and sisters might, but this isn't speaking to that case. This is speaking to the everyday walk of life. As you interact with others in your home, in your workplace, social media, 
and just in the way you think about and respond to the government, what's the way to biblically do that in a way that brings glory to God and does not discredit the gospel? That's the lane that we will stay in this morning because that's what Peter and Paul are talking about. So let's look at the Christian's view of government. If we embrace the motive, uh, the, the view becomes very clear. Uh, let me just read uh, verses 13 through 17. Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The first thing we see about a Christian's view of the government is that government was instituted by God. It was instituted by God. We see that here in this first verse. Be subject, it's very interesting um, choice of words here and order of words here in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word institution there is actually the word creation. And it's a very interesting play on words. Uh, Peter is kind of placing this in the broader conversation saying, be subject under the, under the sovereignty of your creator to things that he has created. And so he's comparing our sovereign creator to human creations. And he says this, because of the Lord's sake, you can be subject to human institutions. Paul says it very clearly in Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's pretty clear, right? No loopholes there. Government was instituted by God under his sovereignty and all authority finds its source in him. And why was government instituted by God? The second thing is it was instituted to keep order, law, and justice. We see that in verse 14 here, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Again, in Romans 13, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Government was created, instituted by God to keep order, law, and justice. And I know you're thinking, boy, there's, there's times you look around and you see chaos and injustice and lawlessness, right? But the, the purpose of government is to bring order, law, and justice. And we need to be praying that that happens, right? Instead of just complaining about the government, we need to be praying as we, I hope you hear that, 
uh, when we pray for our government every week, that we seek for God to restore order, law, and justice, and that our government authorities would seek order, law, and justice. And so we need to pray for that. We need to desire that. That was the purpose of government as God instituted it. And I know our government's not perfect, but we do live under the freedom provided by our government uh, to come here and worship this morning, right? We can be grateful for that. Many people do not enjoy that freedom this morning. This is what God intended for government to keep order, law, and justice. And so the result of that then, it's instituted by God to keep order, law, and justice, then this might be the one we struggle with the most. We are to give respect and honor to government authority. Verse 17 is a very interesting uh, set of phrases here. It, it speaks to really four spheres of life. And it tells an interesting story. It says, honor everyone. And if you wonder what everyone means there, it means everyone. In every sphere of your life, even complete strangers. Honor everyone. Even that political party that you despise. Honor everyone. And then it narrows it. There's a special love for the brotherhood, for the church. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. And then it says, fear God. There is a special reverence and, and fear and respect and honor that belongs to God alone. And under that fear and respect, we can then honor those that God has given authority. And here it was the emperor. This might have been jarring words to the early church. But see how he's painting the picture. Under the sovereignty of God, you can do these things. Notice it doesn't say fear the emperor. Fear God. Fear God alone. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10 in this same context. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a fear reserved for God alone. Because the things of God have eternal consequences. Uh, we do not fear government because it is under the authority of God, and it is temporal. You know, Rome came and went. You know, America's gonna come and go. This is temporal. We cannot lose sight of the eternal for temporal things. If I was to, to put a principle or, or to try to articulate a principle as to our view of government, I think I would put it this way. It's, it's deference over preference. You understand what I mean by that? Deference 
over preference. There are a lot of things when it comes to government that I would prefer. There have been a lot of things in the last year that I have my preferences about. I would prefer not to, I would prefer to see your faces this morning. I would prefer a lot of things. But the principle that we see here is that we defer for, the, for God's sake, for God's glory, for the sake of the gospel, we defer to government authorities over our preference. And we do it out of reverence. Maybe we'll say it that way. Deference over preference out of reverence to our sovereign creator. This should come more naturally for Christians than anybody else, right? Deference over preference is, is something that we are supposed to live out every day with each other. Remember, it said honor everyone. Deference over preference is something we should show to everybody, including complete strangers. Your needs before mine. Your wants before mine. This should be the default behavior in our homes, deference over preference. No, your needs first over my preference. How would that change your home if that was the default behavior? It should be the default behavior in the church, deference over preference with each other. I, I suspect in the last year or so that there have been things that have happened in the, in the church or decisions we've made as elders that you might have preferred go differently. Maybe you thought we moved too fast. Maybe you thought we moved too slow. Maybe you think we shouldn't be doing any of this stuff anyway. Uh, can I tell you, we really, we really wrestled with this idea of how do we honor God? How do we not discredit the gospel and defer to these things that the government is asking us to do. And, and listen, I am so thankful for your graciousness with us in deferring on some of these things. It is a principle that makes the church work. At least, at least you, you were gracious um, publicly. <laughs> I don't know about how you were privately. But we are, we're grateful for that. We have tried to find that balance and deference over preference is a principle that we can all live by. Finally, what is the Christian's duty to government? There were some in, in, uh, in the early church, both, both Christians and Jews, who believed that the Christian uh, had no duty to government. And they were causing all kinds of problems in Rome and all kinds of civil disobedience. And the government and others were using their, their civil disobedience to silence the church. And that's part of what Peter is writing to address here. No, this is not the way you go about this. For the Lord's sake, for his glory, and for the sake of the gospel, the first thing we do is we subject ourselves. You see it here in verse 13, Titus 3.1, remind him to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities. This doesn't mean you agree with everything, but you subject yourself, deference over preference, and deference carries with it that honor and respect of that authority because that authority comes from God. 
The second thing we do as, far, as part of our duty is not just subject ourselves and kind of, you know, drag our feet and complain every step of the way. It says that we, as citizens, are to live a good and godly life. That is part of our duty as citizens. I, I think the, prep, the, uh, the principle here is that we are not citizens who happen to be Christians, right? Peter is saying, no, you are Christians who happen to be citizens of this country. This is eternal, this is temporal. And so everything you do needs to start with that reality. And that means as citizens, as citizens who are Christians, you should be the best citizens there are. You should live good and godly lives. Do you see how many times he instructed them to live peaceably, live honorably. He says it most, most clearly in, in uh, 1 Timothy, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God. And he says that these people are accusing you of civil disobedience. You should be living in a way that if somebody accuses you, nobody's going to believe it. Because you're living a life above reproach. Live a good and godly life. You know, part of living a good and godly life is taking advantage of our rights as citizens, things like voting. That's part of our right as citizens. We should be doing that, right? It doesn't mean we just completely disconnect with anything related to the government, but we live good and godly lives. That means we're praying for our government, we're taking advantage of our rights, and we're voting, and we're influencing where we can. But it's all under the, under the sphere of, man, there is much bigger calling going on here. But we are to be good and godly citizens of this country. Finally, our duty... The third thing, after subjecting ourselves and living a good and godly life, he says several places here and in Paul's writings, we are to avoid conflicts. It speaks here in, in 1 Peter 2 and in, in verse 15 of putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, the, the implication of that is that you're living in such a way and you're not engaging in conversation that would create com controversy. In Titus 3, he says this very clearly, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. And he reminds them, we were all that way. We were all foolish, disobedient, led astray. But in verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. This is all in the context of this command about government. When it says there, <clears throat> excuse me, avoid foolish controversies, the, the word there is conspiracies. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to leave that alone. <laughs> Not everything is a conspiracy. We are to avoid foolish controversies. We are to avoid those things that will distract and divide. That is our duty. We are Christians first before we are citizens.
A couple questions to consider when confronted with the truths here in 1 Peter. Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of the United States. Which, which citizenship concerns me more? Which one do I care more about? Another way to say that is number two, am I as passionate about the gospel and the souls of people as I am about the government and my constitutional rights? Listen, I love the First Amendment. Free speech enables us to do what we're doing this morning. If they were to take that away, oh no, what's God going to do? I think sometimes when we, when we worry about what may happen in our country, what rights we may lose, if Christianity is going to be silenced, if persecution is going to come, and listen, I don't want any of those things, but when you look at the bigger picture and you look around the world, the places where Christianity is exploding it's not exploding in constitutional democracies. It's not exploding in places where they have free speech rights. It's exploding in places that are oppressed and persecuted. That's the pattern throughout history. If persecution is coming to America, that's probably the best thing for the church, right? Remember Pastor Lockwood used to say it's coming in, he was, it was gonna, persecution was coming in his lifetime and he was ready for it because the church needed it. We're so afraid of something that, that may actually be what's best for us. Number three, do I see the government and the situations surrounding the government from the reality of a sovereign creator? And do I see government officials and the people that I'm dealing with from a government perspective from the perspective of a redeemed sinner? That biblical worldview, right? That will ground you and that will give you the right attitude towards people that are making decisions that you don't agree with. Their greatest need is not a change in political party or ideology, right? Their greatest need is the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel, just like ours. Last question, what about God's attributes or character am I doubting when I worry about the government? If you, if you, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about our country and the things that are going on, but man, if we're consumed by worry and doubt and fear when it comes to the government and things that are happening and decisions that are being made and the courts and all this other stuff, it's really, that worry and doubt is really an indictment of God. We're either indicting his, his knowledge or his omniscience and his wisdom. God, you, you either, you don't know what you're doing if you knew what you were doing, we would have a different president right now. If you knew what you were doing, we would have had a different president the last four years. 
If you knew what you were doing, Congress would not be controlled by this party or that party. I would have done it differently. God, you've lost control. That's the indictment when we make these sweeping, confident statements about what is right and wrong in government. God, you don't know what you're doing, or you don't have enough power to do anything about it. We're indicting his power. Or maybe you do know what you're doing, and you do have the power, or we'll just indict his character then. Maybe he's just not good. Obviously, something's wrong here. And not leaving any possibility for the, the, the fact that maybe our sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who is not confined to time and space, who is self-existent, who has all authority, may be working a plan that we can't see. We need to trust God. He, he instituted government. We need to trust him in that. Let me close with this thought. I don't know if this has been encouraging, discouraging, depressing, enlightening. Can we, can we end with some hope? You ever thought about the future of government? When's the last time you thought about the future of government? We could go to Revelation, and we, we, we had some songs that spoke to it a little bit about the new heaven and the new earth and what that's going to be like. My favorite passage on the future of government comes from the prophecy of Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, written hundreds of years before his birth. Familiar words, for to us a, son, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. For the first time in all of history, government will not be a bad word. Because the government will be on his shoulder. And here's what that government is going to be, here's who that government is going to be ruled by. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's the future of government. All the things that we complain about government, right? It's full of lies, manipulation, secrecy. Well, the new government's going to be run by the wonderful counselor, the source of all knowledge and wisdom. We worry about the abuse of power with government. The new government will be run by the almighty God, the source of all power and authority, and that benevolent power will be for our good for eternity. We worry about war and conflict from governments. This government will be ruled by the Prince of Peace, and of his government of peace there will be no end. We worry about injustice and evil. His government will be upheld with justice and righteousness forevermore. This is the future of government. And listen, as, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that, that, those two words, justice and righteousness, right, we celebrate that. 
that we will live under that for eternity. But if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, those, those words should terrify you. Because the reality of that, if, the, if his kingdom is a kingdom of justice and righteousness, that means those who are not just or not righteous cannot be in his kingdom. And, and if you stand before God one day in your own righteousness, you will fall short. Because his standard of justice and righteousness is perfection. And the only one who has met that standard is Jesus Christ. So please, we will all stand before God one day. Please trust in Jesus for your salvation. Turn from your sin. Acknowledge him, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection for your forgiveness of sins. We will live under his justice and his righteousness forever. And so while we are on this earth, we can respect and submit the governing authorities for his glory and for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are in control. Forgive us where we think we knew better. Help us to trust you in the midst of the chaos in this world, the injustice in this world, the lawlessness in this world. Oh God, would you give us an eternal perspective that we would be ever mindful of your glory and ever mindful of our mission of the gospel and to take that gospel to the ends of the earth and to the end of the street. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.